0: Established in 2002, Hotwire Coffee is located in a charming 1910 building in the heart of West Seattle, offering unique coffee drinks using locally roasted seven coffee roasters, high quality teas from B. Fuller's, Motor, and Pestle, and locally made burritos from El Bujo. Locally owned, community operated, laid back ambiance, covered patio with seating and dog friendly. Use the code doctor and the DJ and get 20% off any sized espresso beverage.
1: Hello, this is Dr. Amy Lindsay, and I'm here to remind you that the information in this podcast is not medical or other professional advice. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. You should not rely on anything you hear as a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional who is familiar with your personal situation. Listening to this podcast may, however, give you a sense of belonging, make you spit-take your coffee, realize that DJs can do more than play music, uplift you during a shit day, teach you that sometimes doctors swear too much, or remind you that you are not alone.
0: we had to make sure everything still works. All the buttons still work. Do you want to test that? Test. Podcast. Testicle. Podcast Tesla.
1: Happening. Testicles.
0: That's going in the podcast. Season two is going to be strong. Uh, we're, we're back, Amy. The podcast is back. We're doing stuff. We're back. We're back. Okay, so we've been gone um, for a little while, a month or two. And, well, we've
1: been here in our house.
0: Yeah, we we didn't leave the house, and, and we just left the podcast. Podcast has been sitting here waiting for us to record it. It's a thing, a living thing. And so we're doing today's theme on grief. This is the time of year where grief is in the air, and uh, and we're gonna. That's our theme today. So uh, aren't you glad you're back for this new season? You get to hear about grief. So stick with us on this, okay? Um, but we've been gone for a little while, and I was thinking, did anyone has anyone died? Has anyone died in the I last have to really think about yeah that. I, like
1: i'm I, ha- I mean people have died, but I don't know if I know any of the people that died. That's
0: a good point. many humans have died in fact, more people have died probably than have lived uh in the history of mankind
1: <laughs> no, well yes, in total mankind in
0: total mankind humankind not in replacing humans like humans living and dying we're still overpopulating no, but
1: more humans have died. Than who are not dead. Oh, ninety nine
0: percent of humans are dead. Ninety nine point <laughs> nine. I would I would I'm just guessing on that because they've all died already. That's right. I'm saying in our in our life, I had to think about it for a second. I, I think we may have gotten off scot free the last few months without knock on wood. Yeah. Okay. Well, how about some quick check-ins before we get into our grief podcast? You know, checking in about some subjects that were were left hanging from season one. We don't know how they turned (laughs) out. Uh, Real quick, West Seattle Bridge is... Still closed. Still closed. We're still stuck here. Global pandemic, it's...
1: Ambiguous. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, i go with that. Uh, Our bar. Is open. It's open. We did have a few... uh, There's a lot of break-ins. A lot of people just busting down windows and doors, but good news...
1: Macaulay Colkin lives there now.
0: That's right. we got a paint can that falls into your face. We have um, tacks on the ground, and um, he lives there now. He was out of work. His brother's really busy in succession, but Macaulay is in our bar protecting us now. Yeah,
1: he sleeps on the orange couch.
0: That, and we put in steel-plated things in our doors and alarms Completely and everything. Completely so redid don't everything. come to yeah. life on Mars if you're planning on breaking in. We've stopped.
1: We, we also created a explosion of pink paint and glitter we just, that'll just cover right. your face. So and
0: here's the good news on that one. A random customer sometimes will get that bomb go off in their face with the glitter, which I think is a nice touch of the bar.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, how about our marriage?
1: We're still intact. Still We're tech. still married. We're still good? Yeah.
0: All right. Great. I threw that in as a surprise. Just check in. That's, that's how I check in with Amy. Uh, our kids still... Uh,
1: they still live with us. Yeah. You know, we still cook for them. <laughs>
0: One of them's getting old enough. Where we he's, still
1: drive them places.
0: He's going to be able to drive and cook and stuff soon. It's going to be great.
1: Yeah, the older one, he's he's required to make his own breakfast and lunch now.
0: Yes, that's a sign.
1: And he does his own laundry. Good things And are coming. he's learning to drive, which is terrifying, the, but that's a thing.
0: The dog is still alive. We've not killed the dog.
1: Although she had giardia.
0: Yeah, she did. She just shit everywhere. It was everywhere at all times. It was times. the worst. If
1: everywhere. your dog ever gets giardia, it's the worst.
0: Yeah, it's just everywhere. Uh, and your practice. It's awesome. Your medical practice. It's doing great. Yeah. Yeah. Helping people. Yeah. How about that radio show?
1: You still have that radio show?
0: I, d- I do have that radio show. Mm-hmm. I did one of them today. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. still got it.
1: Still playing the music. S- still
0: playing talking the music. Talking to the people. Talking to the people. Being this person live on the air. Yep. Yeah. I'm still that guy. Mm-hmm. Still that guy here in Seattle. You know, I've been on the radio probably more than anyone in Seattle, probably in its history. Mm-hmm. I'm like dead people. I've been around longer <laughs> than every other radio host. On today's Doctor and the DJ podcast, we're going to be talking about living with grief and learning how to live this life that will ultimately end in death with one of our heroes, Dr. Brad Lichtenstein. We also are going to be featuring the music throughout this podcast from Germany's Leah Porcelain. I just love this band. Choirs to Heaven is their album. You'll be hearing parts of it throughout the podcast. And we're going to feature one of the most uplifting, comforting songs I have ever heard at the end of today's podcast. Amy, as I mentioned earlier, today's podcast we're going to be talking about grief. Uh, Amy and I have hosted a uh, an event called Death and Music for years. We've taken a break because of the pandemic. A place where our guest later today we saw and spoke, uh, Dr. Brad, uh, is going to be coming up. We'll tell you a little bit about that in a sec. Um, but we did that event for years, and what led to that. If you're not familiar with the radio show I do, I do a radio show every year dedicated to my mother who passed away. Oh God. So many years ago, I lose track seventeen seventeen years ago, jeez, wow, yeah wow I don't think about those numbers very often, and then I do, and it really hits home. It's been a long time, you know, um, and been doing that every year on the air, and what it's become is uh the community actually gets involved and, and talks about their grief it's I think at a certain point when you've been dealing with grief. You sort of open the door for other people. I think you become a person who can talk to others about grief at some point when you're over yours. If she had died last year, I would be of no service to other people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, we wanted, and we're around that time of year when we do that show. So we wanted to have our first podcast be around grief, Amy. And um, our guest, Dr. Brad... Uh, we'll be talking more about death and, and grief. And he's just amazing. So make sure you listen to, the, to this interview. Um, somewhere talking about just the other, just I think last night, actually, Amy. Was la- yeah, it was last night. Yeah,
1: last night. Because
0: this is what we do in the Richards House. We talk about death and grieving over, uh, you know, <laughs> wine late at night. Uh, we, didn- we weren't even drinking. Jeez, no, we weren't we're even drinking. Just sitting on the couch catching up. We were just talking about um, just how people deal with grief. And one of the things I brought up was my mom died of lung cancer. And someone else in my life actually is dealing with lung cancer right now. Um, And what my mom said to me was they don't have fun runs for lung cancer. You don't have charities for lung cancer. You don't have like people cheering for the people fighting lung cancer. And she was right. And she said, well, I said, why is that? She said, well, because people look at it as preventable that it's it's because I smoked. And my mom did. And the number one question I would get, or she would get even, which seems so gross to me, was, did did you, oh, did you smoke? Mm -hmm. And we know now, um, I clearly don't have statistics or know this uh, specifically, but- that you, lung cancer now is very much uh, happening in people who, who don't smoke. Like my, my, my person in my life who has lung cancer is not a smoker. So it's happening more. So maybe that dialogue will change. But the point is, why are we doing that? Why, why, why I'm guilty of it. When I hear some accident has happened or I saw a car wreck that was in our neighborhood and I looked it up. And when I saw it was in like a tiny little hatchback, like I felt a sense of safety because my car is newer and not a hatchback. And would have survived that wreck most likely. So is that what is that what we're doing? We're protecting ourselves?
1: Oh, it's a hundred percent we're selfishly trying to keep ourselves safe. And we don't even know we're doing it. It's like our subconscious is kicking in. And we all do it. We ask those questions which are really can be insensitive in the moment. Because we're trying to protect ourselves, like subconsciously, we're thinking, okay, I don't smoke, I'm not getting cancer. Or we're thinking, oh, I don't drive that car, therefore I'm safe. Or we're thinking, you know, like my sister was murdered. She was beat to death on Halloween by her husband. (laughs) And people would say, oh, well, well, were there signs of abuse? Really? Or did she know? Or did you know? Or because it's this sense of if we knew or if we saw signs, that it wouldn't happen, right? Right. And these questions we blurt out to people in these moments, we don't even know we're doing it. We are literally like hardwired for survival. So we're we're asking these questions to make sure we're safe. I mean, it's unreal if you think about it. We all do it.
0: You know, and something else, I notice people apologize when they're talking about their grief it was my grandpa died he
1: was
0: he was older he he was old your dad he was in his nineties. I don't know if you did that, but but that's the the kind of thing people do. you know my dog died I know it's a dog i, I know, but you know I had that dog for it's it's people are also apologize that somehow this time has come, and they almost deserve to die at this age. And so uh, I know I shouldn't be grieving as much as I should, but why is that? Of course you should. I always think of a grandpa dying as if your grandpa died and they're in his 90s or your father, that means so much of your life has been with this person so much, so much of your life. I mean, your dad died and you're in your forties. So yeah. so that is a long time to have someone and then not.
1: You know, that's true. But I think, um, I think it actually speaks to these different layers of grief and, um, I think that there's a layer of loss that'll be there that's I honestly feel like is the same no matter what. Yeah. If your grandfather or father or mother or you know, someone you love so deeply, they die at 40 or they die at 90, the loss is the same. I think that there's another layer to grief we don't talk about as much and it's sort of the the pain that comes with the expectation. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So when people suddenly die or they die young, it's an extra layer. It's the loss is the same. The love is the same. That that hasn't changed, but it's this layer of um, expectation of time or expectation of relationship or expect you know there's like a different expectation that is also lost. So it's not just the person, but it's like what you expected. To have in your life. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. And everyone is so different with their grief. You know, I've heard, you know, become a bit of an expert on this, not on purpose, but I've probably had a thousand people write me about, and that's probably actually low, um, about their grief. And I don't think I've had the same message twice. Yeah. I, I really don't. I mean, yeah. some people are just years, just, you're, there's people in your family who are in this position, They've right. never recovered from this.
1: No, I mean, you and I were talking about this yesterday. I had therapy yeah. yesterday. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it's that time of year that my sister was murdered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have these like PTSD headaches that randomly just knock me on my ass once in a while. And, and you and I were talking about that. And my therapist was asking me about it. And, um, and I said, you know, I'm actually very functional, and I'm still just kind of living in my life. And it's not because I'm pushing through or something. I'm not not taking care of myself. I absolutely am going for walks and having some rest and like saying no to things and and whatnot. But I'm also capable. Like I'm not as desperately in that depression or in that PTSD that I used to be in. And my therapist said, yeah, well, you know, like they say with time. And I said, uh-uh, nope, no, no. <laughs> And she started laughing. The life of Amy therapist. Said,
0: Yeah. <laughs> Hold on, sister. Hold on,
1: sister. And and I said, yes, there's, okay, yes, time is absolutely a variable. Yeah. So, I, you know, don't get me wrong. Time is absolutely a piece of the puzzle, right? But what you do with that time also matters. Like I mm. have aggressively <laughs> sought out, you know, therapy and treatments for my PTSD and I have, you know, I get up every day and like, you know, I journal like what I expect of myself that day and what my my goals are for a day. And sometimes the goals are make sure you go for a walk, make sure you, you know, rest, whatever. And it is waking up every morning and like taking care of myself, taking care of my mental health and my physical health and emotional health. And, um, that is not the case for, many of the people in my family who also lost my sister.
0: Well, yeah. And I was even going to say those who maybe have the tools to be able to do that, if they're listening right now and they've recently just, uh, experienced grief or they're mm-hmm. close to it, maybe someone in their life is near death or, or whatever. Understand, uh, watching Amy, this has taken decades to get to this point to be able to work this hard.
1: Well, I think part of it's, again, it's not just the loss. Like yeah. I had to go through, it was a crime. Yeah. Right. And so when someone dies via crime, (laughs) you're so busy sorting out the crime or sorting out the injustice, and anyone who's lost somebody due to injustice, right? And it may not have been a crime, but it could have been injustice, Mm -hmm. right? Like it could have been medical racism or something. Whatever the injustice was, is it's like clouding the loss. Like I don't know how else to explain it. Mm -hmm. It's such another layer to sort through. That it makes the the loss part and the sadness almost buried under that stuff at times, and so it, it takes quite a bit to sort through. Yeah,
0: Amy, if you're if you're someone who is about like I just mentioned, you're about to just, you're about to experience. I was going to ask Doctor Brad about this. I, I'm curious about this, like training for grief, right? <laughs> like grief is something death happens, none of us are prepared for it. And then you're, it's like, you've immediately go run a marathon. You've not trained for it. And we're going to tell you how to do it after. And you're going to learn after, not before. I I guess I'd ask you going into maybe early stages of grief or you're going to experience. I mean, my first thought is if I was talking to someone would be forgiveness of yourself Mm -hmm. and however you're feeling, like letting yourself feel however it is you feel because, I I was I, I had different ways of reacting to both my parents. I had a my father, my mother, and then at the time my father-in-law, who was a good dude, um, and he wasn't clearly in my life, you know. And th- those three died within four years of each other. So in my mind, like people are just falling, just falling off the face of the earth. They're just gone. This whole generation, and and so each one got harder, and then the most important one died third, like Your my mom. mom. Yeah. And so I'd had these different experiences, but then that one's just like, what the fuck, man? What what am I even doing here? What, 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 how, what are we, what are we trying to do here? Like, this is, this is so difficult. I don't even understand what we're doing here in this life. I mean, that's where I was. So for me, it would be allow yourself to feel those feels.
1: Yes. And, and both. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and both. Uh, grief is a gift. Yeah. And I, yeah, and I don't I say it. that lightly, I and it. I don't say it like some positive thinking lipstick on the pig, <laughs> you know, brushing over it, because sure. clearly I've dealt with some intense grief in my life. But grief is a gift because it shows you not only your capacity to love, yeah. but it also shows you what you're made of, right? Mm. Because I think sometimes it takes these experiences to wake us up it really does and most people go through their lives like half asleep until they trip over something or something happens or someone dies and then it's like holy shit wait a second what are we doing here what's the point <laughs> yeah and and you and and it's a gift because then you become a little bit present to what am i doing with my life and and i honestly like in some of my darkest moments when i was poor me my sister was murdered i mean that was poor me that sucked But I, you know, what got me through it was I was like, wait a second, she doesn't, she's not alive. Her life was taken from her. And what am I doing here? And I started to get really present to what my purpose was or looking for some sort of purpose or looking for some sort of like, what am I going to do with myself? And I picked myself back up and then I started living a life with purpose and, and then that carries through everything, you know, like I married the wrong person. And then I, you know, I have, I have a sense of purpose. So I made sure I divorced that person, <laughs> and then, you yeah. know, and then I married you and that's been great. And, you know, and I went back to medical school and like every, every day and every week and every month and every year I'm living with purpose or like my eyes are open. And that doesn't mean life is easy by any means, cause it's not.
0: Yeah. If I look back, I turned it, uh, the seeds were being planted for me to turn it around and the breaks w- really came. It really is interesting. You say, I don't think I've thought about it till you said that just now. I, I think if I look back, that was being planted in me while I was going through it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this life is not like I thought it was. I got to get my shit together. I, I, I've got to be there for my kids. I got to be present. I now no longer have a safety net that I thought I had and take any rid of my safety net, for instance, was important to me. You know, knowing I had to do this on my own, which got me out of my marriage and, and with you.
1: So. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, the other thing I just want to say about that, like, yeah, life is hard, right? It is. It has varying degrees for different people, for sure. sure. But I think that individually, if you can just pick yourself back up and try to use some of your grief as a gift in a way, like you can honor the people you lost, you can love them, you can be so sad, and feel that emptiness and be so sad. And you can also honor them by honoring yourself, right? You know, I don't, I don't um, subscribe to this like guilt trip situation, right? Like when my grandpa died, I had an uncle approach me, and basically tell me I had to go back to the Mormon faith, because that's what my grandpa would want me to do. And he's dead now. And I was like, Dude, get the fuck out of my face. I mean, I'm not kidding. I was pissed because I am not, I am not a fan of that like death guilt thing. If anything, the people who love you who passed would want nothing more for you than for you to pick yourself up and be yourself 100% and go live a life that you want.
0: listening to right now and throughout this podcast is one of my favorite bands leah porcelain a great duo based out of berlin with a hell of a record called choirs to heaven can't recommend it enough it's everything i love about just moody uh like u2 influence the national kind of with some electronics in it i just love them and uh, i played them a ton uh on my radio show and um Leah Porcelain said, "Their sound uh, is a new German era of sound with a hybrid setup, uh, genre bending, and elements from electronic, post-punk, indie rock, and folk." And I agree with that absolutely. So we're going to be hearing parts of Choirs to Heaven throughout the podcast, and at the end, a single that is one of the most played uh, on my radio show, and one that really goes along with today's theme of grief. So here's some more Leah Porcelain. Yeah.
1: Dr. Brad Lichtenstein is a naturopathic physician in private practice and professor and clinical faculty at Bastyr University. He believes in the power of breath to restore health and balance. Dr. Brad has a strong clinical and teaching focus on developing psycho-emotional spiritual health while dealing with chronic, life-challenging illnesses and trauma. His approach to care was profoundly shaped by his participation in a joint research study between the University of Washington and Bastyr University, where he provided over 500 guided bedside meditations to hospice patients. Dr. Brad is also a BCIA-certified biofeedback and heart rate variability biofeedback practitioner. He is a published author and contributor, public speaker, and has hosted over 40-plus death and cupcakes gatherings around the greater Seattle area, encouraging people to become more comfortable with the inevitable reality of death that faces us all. We are so grateful to have Dr. Brad on our podcast today. Welcome, Dr. Brad.
2: Welcome, thank you thank you. welcome to you too. Uh, thank you. It's so great to see you guys.
0: I love how your bio started with uh, your practice and ended with death facing us all
2: <laughs> yeah yep that's 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 I like that. I didn't even catch that before but yeah, yeah it's that's good a good way to to say it.
0: Well, our theme on the today's podcast too, and around this time of year for us is around grief, and, and it made me think of when I met you. I've heard, I had heard so much about you from my wife, and we met in the booth of my radio show, and also at our death and music event where you spoke. And uh, the and I have to say too, the bands and the artists in the backstage area, all kept telling me. How much they love Dr. Brad and had great conversations, and it's not the usual backstage that I think artists have when they get to talk to someone like you, Dr. Brad. And it made me wonder uh, too. I, I don't remember where where you met Dr. Brad, Amy.
1: Oh, I remember. Dr. Brad may not remember, <laughs> but I remember because I had seen his TED Talk on breathing, oh. where you sang "Into the Woods." And we're telling the whole story about changing your career and sitting in your car and listening to show tunes. And um, I was so moved and touched by your TED Talk. And then I saw you, um, I was a student at Bastier and I saw you in the Bastier Commons area. And I was like, oh, my God, there's that guy. It's the show tunes, it's the show tunes TED Talk guy. And I came up to you, and I'm like, "Hey, are you the Showtunes TED Talk guy?" And you you looked at me like, "Who the hell's this?" And you said, "Yes." And I said, "Oh, great TED Talk," and I like ran away.
2: <laughs> great TED Talk. I, I remember that exactly, <laughs> word for word. Are you the Showtunes <laughs> TED Talk guy? And 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 it's affected my career ever since. Yeah, yes. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: No, but in all seriousness, Dr. Brad was on clinical faculty. When I was a student at Bastier and we got to know each other quite well.
0: And when we started talking about having our, our first uh, podcast of this new season for us, it, it really did fall on around the time where I do my uh, mom's show and the Death and Music mm-hmm. show. And I do that with Amy, so it made sense. When you spoke um, at our Death and Music event, it was re- really helpful. I've been doing this over a decade now, and I found a lot of um, honesty. I'm not looking forward to death. It's not something on my list of things I'm I'm, I'm really excited about. But I'm trying to. Be, I'm optimistic, I guess, is what I, I wanted to say. I, I'm just curious, kind of your philosophy on grief and, and death.
2: Well, the first thing I was going to say was, you know, you may not be looking forward to it, but it it, it is there. <laughs> just just so you know, I, I think you know. Um, and I know we've talked several times, and even when I talk to patients about this. I often haven't been sharing some of this, but, and I don't remember if I've ever talked to both of you about this, but, you know, when I was 16, I tried to commit suicide. And that was just one event that actually profoundly impacted me, (laughs) obviously. Um, There were lots of reasons behind that. Um, I was unsuccessful. And of course, you know, for those of us who... uh, when we're young and depressed and think we're a failure, I used to joke, Well, see, I was even a failure in that. Um, but, you know, at that time, I really didn't want to die. I just didn't want to live. So that was a little bit different. But then, fast forward to my second year in college, and I had a little medical event. This was back in 1986. Don't do the math about my age. And I had to go to the hospital. I won't say which hospital and they ran some tests and I was misdiagnosed as being HIV positive. So again, I don't know if I shared that with you guys ever, but um, that really changed a lot of my life at that time. I mean, up until then, I was this good Jewish boy student, second year in college, I I never drank, I didn't understand partying with people, you know, it's like I always looked at the people who were drinking in in college and going, what's wrong with them? And then I learned to drink after that very well because my whole thought was i'm not hiv positive i found out for for a week i thought i was and this was when you had five years that was about Mm -hmm. it right you know and i thought okay that's it uh then i found out that that was a mistake that was another thing then then the hospital told me that it wasn't my test and everything and so then i thought well what what the hell it doesn't matter it's just a matter of time anyway i'm going to become hiv positive and then you know So what am I doing all of this for? And so that spiraled me into a whole cycle. And it made me really look at death. And then, of course, loved ones, partners, people I dated, becoming HIV positive and dying. That impacted me, too. And then I ran the HIV clinic at Bastyr back in the late 90s, um, which had already started to change. But I had watched going through that, really, really changed my relationship to death. And I know it's also just part of me too saying, I really don't know as a physician, I can't fix things. Back in when we started with HIV care, you couldn't fix it. We could help mitigate side effects, but we didn't have any naturopathic miracles that were going to change it. So the conversations changed from Okay, what can we do to fix this? Which is what everybody does, even the biohackers out there now. So many people have this idea in healthcare, if you get the right thing, you'll live forever. And that isn't always the case. So I just started exploring with people, how do you want to live this minute? Because I don't know if you're going to have another minute. Mm. So all of that has really profoundly shaped how I look at, at things. Plus I've had, have I have family members, my mother, my sister, my brother, all have muscular dystrophy and i watched my mother who just died this year in january mm,
1: so sorry um,
2: and we couldn't be there mm. um, so i watched her physical health deteriorate and it influenced me too because i would always say oh that my ankle hurts my knee hurts uh, i'm not going to complain not that i would ever say that to anyone I, I don't do the suffering olympics thing oh my suffering's worse than your suffering is but it put things into perspective for me So with all of that, I I know that death is inevitable and I believe it's actually something to celebrate because it helps give life more meaning in my idea, in my worldview. And I just think that like the Bhutanese, you should think about death five times a day because then it will help you reflect on how are you alive now and how are you engaging in this moment right now. That's a long-winded answer to that.
1: No, I love it. You know... John and I were talking earlier, and I was saying that when we're born and when we die, they're both the most incredible, miraculous things, the most extraordinary things in the world, and yet they're also the most ordinary experiences in the world. Exactly. And so I love that you just said that. Like, we might as well face it.
0: Well, I I realized like my fear of flying wasn't a fear of flying, it was a fear of death. And so I never tell Amy this. But I have a saying every time I'm preparing to get on a, f- a flight and I say, well, if I live, I'm going to make the most out of our destination. And even coming home, I'm going to make the most out of being at home now that I'm coming home. If I live <laughs> and then the plane takes off and I always, I never think about a fear of flying again. It's only the anticipation of, and it works. You say that saying five times a day, which is brilliant. I at least do it once every time I fly. And I have to say, very successful, that
2: practice. But I want to know, does that practice pertain to while enjoying every moment of being on the plane?
0: <laughs> yes, it does. Okay. Well, it all depends <laughs> on our seats, but uh, that, that, that does influence a little yeah, bit. Yeah. But yes. So then when I'm there, this is a good question because this is, this is in the present, right? So when I'm there, my thought is I never get to sit and read. I I just don't have time in the day or I don't make time in the day, I should say, to sit and read. So I always read something or watch a video that I would never watch in the middle of the day. And I don't just do that as a lazy thing. I just look happy as shit. I am just like reading my book and happy to be on this plane, even if I'm in the middle seat. So I guess it doesn't matter in the back by the bathroom because I've lived first off and the takeoffs, the most dangerous part. And then I'm in the moment. It would be so great to be able to hold on to that throughout your day, throughout your month, throughout your year, not just on a plane.
2: Exactly. I mean, but I think that's, that is the essence of the work I do, I think, because I'm really not interested in fixing the problem, getting rid of anxiety, getting rid of depression. Because uh, also there's so many systemic issues that we'll not be able to address. I really want to know, how are we orienting to it? How do we have a relationship with it? pain and suffering is inevitable, as we know for the last few months here. Um, And I point out to many people that who are so surprised by this pandemic that I already lived through one with HIV and and noticing when it didn't affect that population, nobody seemed to care. That's my little judgment there. Um, But the whole point of how do you want to be in this moment, you have physical pain, how do you want to be? So when I got my second Moderna shot, And I remember for the first 12 hours of like no symptoms. I'm gonna be fine. I'm gonna be fine. And then (laughs) it was like 16-hour mark hit, and bam, the fever started. And I so I'm laying in bed. It was it was one of the worst experiences I noticed for, for that period of time. And I was meditating to try to get rid of the pain. I had a fever. I was trying to breathe to get my temperature. And then I said, wait a minute. This is what it is right now. Can I just fully be mindful, I know everyone throws out word around, but I teach that, you know, can I be just present to the suffering? Can I get this paid? I don't like it. It's not about liking it. There's a lot of things we don't like in the world. And actually, I settled enough to fall asleep, maybe for about an hour, and then I wake up again, and I did the whole thing again. But that speaks to what we do. I was sitting there trying to do all these techniques to get rid of the pain. I was like, you, you can't outrun it.
1: You know, what you're talking about is not how most people think, Dr. Brad. Did you know that?
2: (laughs) I've been told this many times, yes.
1: Most people do not orient to pain or depression and anxiety that way. Instead, we're always fighting it. And so I guess my question is, A, I want you to define mindfulness for us. And B, I would love to know if you think that this reaction and this fighting against it makes it worse, and would you say sort of settling into it and accepting it is a much more healthy way to go about life?
2: Yes. So mindfulness, to start with, mindfulness is simply awareness of the present, and we could put whatever there, the present object, the present experience without judgment or elaboration. Because the minute we judge it, and, and, and we're not going to be free of judgment right? The the first thing is we have an experience, we feel a sensation in our body, we see something happen, a loved one dies, there's an event that we experience. But what most of us do is then immediately give it a valence of positive, negative, like it, I don't like it. And that's where everything starts, right? Then it's like, oh, I want to pull it closer to me or push it away. And in no way is any practitioner of mindfulness or meditation ever saying, get rid of your, your judgments. They're not saying that. They're saying, be aware of it. Notice what you're doing. And again, it's not about liking or loving something. So it's just being present to it and experiencing it. And we can geek out about the brain science behind that, the neuroscience about it. But there is a difference between in the experience and then layering it with judgment.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so mindfulness is not a technique to relax. Mindfulness is not about getting rid of your pain. It's about really confronting this. And, and that hospice study that I, you mentioned in my bio, you know, I did this 500 times with people. Not everybody felt calm at the end of that. A lot of times they confronted what they're feeling and thinking with more clarity and it brought up pain, but they were able to tolerate it. So mindfulness is about learning to tolerate the moment. And mindfulness is not a passive experience. A lot of people judge, oh, you're just sitting there doing nothing. It's like, sit and watch your breath without judging it. Tell me that's nothing. (laughs) Because we immediately say, oh, this is hard. I don't want to do it. Okay, don't like it, push it away. Or I'm failing at it, which is a lot of people say. It's not about failing at it. So yes, mindfulness is the first condition, I think, for everything. We have to be aware of what it is or we can't change anything. And it's about learning to tolerate discomfort. And I could say we have a culture, but you know, the Buddha talked about this thousands of years ago. So there's always been a culture to want to run away from what we're feeling. Mm. And I find that more and more people, you know, I do biofeedback, more and more people are seeking me out for biofeedback because again, they want to get rid of something rather than to learn how to be present to it and know themselves. It's not It's not easy, it isn't, but it's an active process. And acceptance, again, doesn't mean passivity and not doing anything. Acceptance means to say, this is what reality is. And if I fight with reality, as I love to say, reality always wins. <laughs> the other thing I like to say is it's like about being at peace. You know, two countries may not agree on anything, but when they decide to agree on peace, they put their arms down. They're not fighting and we fight with ourselves all day long. How is that helpful for us?
1: I love that you're talking about this. And I, and I think I know the answer to this, but have you worked with people with uh, substance use? Because just last night, this is a personal story, but just last night, you know, um, yesterday I, I had some like PTSD headaches hit me and I was talking to John about it. And he was saying, you know, this time of year is hard for me, you know, this, there's some death anniversaries going on and whatnot, and um, and I said, yeah, but, you know, I'm just sort of aware of it, and I'm just sort of moving through of it, and I'm not really trying to change it or numb it or fix it, or I'm just sort of like, it hit me when I was in the car, so I pulled over, <laughs> and I approach it with curiosity, and John said, well, some years you do great, and I said, yeah, because I'm drinking. like. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I didn't. I didn't put the two. To, I didn't have the correlation. I didn't. I, I, I had did. the
1: correlation. Oh,
0: <laughs> those were the good years. You were drunk. Uh, he's oh.
1: like, some years you're totally fine. I'm like, yeah, because I was drunk. Like I, so next I was year he's drinking. He's gonna bring you a bottle. But, um, so I find this fascinating, and it just made me think of that, like substance use, and this tendency we have to numb it. And can you talk more about that? We do that with everything. Mm-hmm. You know,
2: some, some people in trauma worlds don't even want to talk about the biochemical part of like, okay, well, alcohol. And I think we can all agree like crystal meth is, yeah, I used to work with people who were infected with HIV, you know, HIV positive and crystal meth users. I, I worked with some people, which was also a challenge. Um, but we all do this, whether mm-hmm. it's Facebook don't we all know now about how it's Instagram's harming young girls? It's not just young girls. How many of us scroll through something? But wait a minute. Is there any chemicals going through my finger as I'm scrolling? I mean, it affects our brain, but mm-hmm. we're all doing that. And I say to everyone, I think it's always about safety. We talk mm-hmm. about this negativity bias. We're always searching for safety and security. If we don't feel safe, Our nervous system says, well, how much energy do I have to expend to deal with this? And for some of us, we mobilize and go, 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 go to try to take care of it. And that's why at three o'clock in the morning, we're thinking of all those things. Some of us say it's just too much and we shut down. But it's all about our brain predicting how much energy we're going to use if we don't feel safe. So we do anything. How many Netflix series have I binged in uh, this pandemic? Or chocolate cookies or... Meditation. We can be addicted to meditation to take us away from what we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say any of these things are inherently bad. We could make some judgments about chemicals, or, or, but it's how we use them. Are we using them to distract ourselves? I mean, the very thing, I think most people in trauma will say this, like, because one of the factors that prevents development of PTSD in traumatic events is social connection. Very strong social bonds can help. You still have, tr- have experienced trauma, but you may not develop the clinical symptoms of PTSD. And th- there was that study about the, not this recent Haitian earthquake, but the previous Haitian earthquake, where the individuals who were not around their family at the time wound up developing more diagnosable PTSD cases than those who were connected to their family. But what do we do when we're stressed, when we don't feel safe? whether it's from our own judgment or about other things, we isolate. Yeah, And and then we say, I'm the only person. You know, or you know, naturopathic medical students. And I can't tell you the number of students I hear going, oh, I'm really a fraud. I don't want anybody to know. It's like, I've just talked to five other people and they're all feeling the same thing. If you guys shared this in a room, maybe we could talk about this. <laughs> but it, it's it's not just... Medical students, it's everybody.
1: Right. And do you think that this constant, what I would say is like a subconscious uh, looking for safety at all times, right? Like we're always trying to be safe, keep yourself safe, 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 safe. And we don't even know we're doing it. Do you think that this is why people shy away from talking about death? It's not safe. It, if it I isn't. talk about death, I might die. <laughs> I, I actually <laughs> have heard
2: that in the death cafes. I've heard some people say that if I talk about this, it's going to I'm going to manifest it was like I guarantee it's going to happen whether you talk about it or not. That's right. And I'm not of of that magical thinking that if you just think something it's going to happen in the yeah. positive, you know, got to stay positive. I do believe because of that negativity bias if we're always viewing something a certain way, we're going to miss a ton of other things. You know, like when you get a new car, you go, "Wow, a lot of people bought that same car." But you didn't see it before you bought it. Because mm-hmm. you weren't aware of it. Um But I think that safety thing is is so important. And when I say safety, I know I use that word broadly. Anything that questions your identity, your worth, your value, your status. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: You know, it's interesting when we play the what if game, and I do that with with people when I'm working with them. It's like, so what if you lost your job? I'm like, that might be great. (laughs) (laughs) But, But until you think about it
0: when you've been with people, uh, at the end of their lives and you're going through this, these meditations and I I've only been through a few, I I've, I've been through a, both my parents at the end of their life. And I took a lot from their last moments. I took a lot from that, that I didn't realize I took till a, a lot later. Um, it sort of, uh, planted some seeds in me that I didn't know were planted And here. I just was devastated and crying and it was, it was kind of a mess with my mom. And and I, I realized how much I got out of the end of her life. But I also understood that at the end of my father's life, that for me, there was a lot of value and I learned a lot kind of in the opposite way. Like I don't wanna, I learned from him. He went kicking and screaming. He died fighting it every step of the way. He He couldn't accept it. I forgave him for everything that had happened in our lives together. And, and and interestingly enough, uh, Dr. Brad, the, the the only dream I've had of my father, he visited me at, at a church near where I was living on Capitol Hill, St. Joseph's, and it was his funeral and he, he didn't understand what was going on and that he wasn't supposed to leave and it wasn't his time. He, well, what's going on, John? He kept trying to, and I was like, hey dude, yeah, it, it actually it's time to go. I, I, and he was in the car and he drove out. He was so confused. I mean, the whole thing, even when I'm dreaming, like had such a profound effect on how I wanted to live my life. And then I faced my mother's death a few years later where she was just beautiful all the way there and saw her mother said it was time to go. It was like two very different. And I can't imagine being through so many, you must've had moments or, or, or seeing people just on the edge of the other side that profoundly impacted you.
2: So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I think, said people die as they lived themselves. Mm. And a, a lot of times in hospice, when people join hospice, and I've heard this from other hospice workers, is that they, they get told, you know, people think, oh, in hospice, we're going to have this come to to awareness moment. And it's like, that's not the way it often happens. Um it's the way you've lived. And thank you for sharing that because I think about my father. Um, my father had prostate cancer first. Then he got metastatic lung cancers, a small cell. He smoked a ton when he was younger. I remember he'd open up the door of his den and smoke would mm-hmm. come out the yep. stairs.
0: remember that, yep.
2: And I was actually with my father when he died. But I remember when he got diagnosed with his lung cancer, the first thing he said to me, I still remember being in the car. He called me on the phone and he said, I need nine months. I need nine months. I got to take care of your mom. And he died nine months later. And he hadn't really done those things that he needed to get done. But when I was there with him, I mean, he was my perspective after having done this. he, He was struggling. I believe he felt like he was a failure. And I guess the thing that it just reminds me of how I want to be when this happens, the profound thing wasn't really when you, you mentioned that or asked me that, wasn't watching people because I've seen everything. It was really watching partners. Mm. And I remember one week specifically that one of my patients who was, well, they were all HIV positive at that time. Um, I got a call from someone who said, I know my, my partner's been seeing you. He's on hospice. He stopped eating. We've taken off fluids he's not dying. And I, and he was like, and I said, so standard thing. We all say, did you talk to him? Did you tell him you forgive? And he said, yes. And I said, well, is there something you want him to know that you're sorry about? Is there anything that you haven't shared? Not about like you forgive him and he can go to the light, which a lot of people say. It's like, what have you not admitted or or afraid to share with him? And I said, can you think of anything? He said, yeah. And so he called me up and he said, he did that. And 15 minutes later, his partner died. Oh my
1: God. Wow.
2: And within the week, another patient's partner called me up and said almost the same story. He's not dying. We have taken, removed fluids. and what He's in hospice. He's in bed here. And I said, It worked just a few days ago. I'm going to try it again. And I said the same thing. It's like, what have you not expressed? Not about forgiving them. What have you not expressed? And same thing happened. And within an hour, his partner passed. And so why I say that's profound to me is it's not just about my death. It's about how do I want to live each moment so that I make sure I share what I need to. Oh, I know I don't do that all the time can just ask my husband, but
0: <laughs>
2: I, but I try to say that all the time.
0: So it's not waiting. It's not waiting. You, you need to be doing this now. Cause you don't know. And if we don't face death, then we're never, we have all this time. I have all this time. I won't. That I think that was my dad. I have all this stuff figured out. I think he wanted to, and then it was too
2: late. Oh, that's my dad. That my dad too. Yeah. Right before the pandemic, November, two thousand nineteen. I actually got supposedly, we think, Bartonella, um, mm. cat scratch fever.
1: Oh, God, I remember that.
2: And uh, it was just a horrible experience. And it was right, it was this Wednesday before Thanksgiving because I went to the ER. They didn't know what it was. They thought it was an abscess. It wasn't. My lymph nodes were like three by four inches, two of them in my armpit. And they sent me an oncology. Oof. And so it was Wednesday. Before Thanksgiving, they were closing. It was, it was the last person, and they said, we, you know, I think you might have cancer. And then, yeah, we think it's cancer. Uh, we're going to have you do a biopsy, but go off for the long weekend. And then when you come back, because of my Baby birthday. We will tell know, you we'll what it. the biopsy said. <laughs> And I was so fatigued and run down, and I was just laying there. But I would look over, and my husband would just start looking at me and crying. It's like, oh my God. It's like, I could have cancer. It doesn't mean I'm going to die. And even so, why don't we enjoy this? time? I was like, why don't we enjoy this time? Um, but everyone responds differently, but yes, like, let's not waste this time.
1: You know, that's interesting. You say that you can say that in those profound moments about a diagnosis or about a death or whatever, but we do this every weekend, you know, like today is Friday and, um, I had a full day. Like I worked my ass off all day long and I continue to work my ass off all day long, but my mindset is light and happy because it's the weekend. (laughs) Even though I've been, you know, I've, I've in my, yeah. (laughs) yeah. And then on Sunday, we almost ruin our Sundays. If if you're somebody who works Monday through Friday, I'm just like, whatever your, um, Mm -hmm. work cycle is right. And then your day off if it's the day before you go back to work, you almost ruin your day because your head is like n- not in the present moment. You're in the future. You're like, oh, I'm overwhelmed. And so we do this all the time. We 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 don't live in that present moment, you know, whether or not someone is dying or whether or not um, we're getting a diagnosis. I mean, we're sabotaging our own mindset on a daily basis. <laughs> You know, or yeah. like if you have a trip planned and, and it's, and it's two weeks from now, you're, you're, you're already there. Like you're psyched. And then. And it doesn't matter
2: what you have to do that week. You might have to matter. do like, you have to do this meeting in front of everybody. And it's really a lot of work, but you go, but I'm going to Hawaii. I'm going to Hawaii. Yeah.
1: And then if you're on the beach in Hawaii and it's your last day, you're like bummed. Oh,
2: God. No, even before the last day, it's like, oh, no. I well, just, some, like, what is wrong so, with us? Some of us are thinking about
0: getting on the plane. So <laughs> That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah.
2: If I make it to Hawaii, if I make it to Hawaii, I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to enjoy the first five of
0: the seven days and then yes. I'll start. My mindset will change. Yes. Yes. Because we're scared
2: of that.
1: But I want to go back to this partner business. <laughs> Okay. I want to go back to this partner business. About, we're going to do couples counseling now. No, no, we're not going to do couples <laughs> okay. counseling. Although that'd be great. We could all. We could, you could bring your husband in here, and we could yeah. all work on a session together. Yeah. Um, we love your husband. How's he doing anyway?
2: He's doing. He's doing well. He needs to listen to this later. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um. So you mentioned. I, I love this because when people are in partnership and one of the partners is dying, and you mentioned that they weren't dying until the living partner expressed something. Do you think that because of their connection and their relationship and their level of trust, do you think that the dying partner somehow knew that there was something unresolved and it was actually important for the living partner To express it, to be able to move on in some way, to not, I I mean, I don't even know what to do with that. I have a lot of ideas, but.
2: That, I don't think there's any way to substantiate that, but I feel that to be true in those cases as well. I think that, do I feel safe enough to leave? Mm. Right?
1: You know, it's not.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think about this because it is a joke and not a joke. Honestly, it's a joke and a not not a joke. I'm older than my husband, but uh, the joke is, you know, he has to go first. Not from that's not my thing. He's like, you can't die before me because he says you can handle it, <laughs> and I was like, and you know, we never know if we can handle things. You know, I've I've handled a lot of people that I've loved dying, and I think I'm at peace with that. I mean we we could even talk about how my mother died in during this whole pandemic and couldn't go and then it's like it's not the best situation it, you know the healthcare she was receiving was not good at all um, and then my sister could beat herself up like oh we need to do this and it's like we we can't there's you know again this is about a radical acceptance thing but going back to my partner it's like you know you have to you have to 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 die after me I was like and I'll tell you what goes through my mind is that's a lot of responsibility. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when you're listening to this, Richard, um, <laughs> but I, I also feel that it's like, cause I believe in my mind, mm, I think I could handle it, but we never know what's going to happen. Right. I hope I rub off on him and he'll be able to handle it. Can you talk about the grief through this pandemic
0: of the isolation and and you've experienced it, not being able to see your mom at at end of life and and everything leading up to that? There's a bit of grief going on. Can you apply grief to the way you live, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yes,
2: because grief, grief by definition is simply loss. It's not about person. It's a loss of, it can be person, it could be function, it could be identity, it could be job, it could be anything that is your common known Way of maneuvering through the world. So, j- just like someone who loses their job, there can be grief. Uh, someone who loses a limb. You know, I was a professional dancer before Bastier, and and when my cartilage got damaged in my knee, and I was like, "That's it, okay." I was ve- I was grieving the loss of that identity. Um, this pandemic has caused changes. As everybody says, "Wait, can't wait to get back to normal." I really have a problem with that phrase. I don't want to go back to normal. I think normal's gotten us into a lot of problems, you know, for the planet. Um, but for me, you know, in my work, I've been just as busy, if not busier, seeing people. Um, but there's a difference between distancing and you know social isolation and social connection, and not seeing people in person. Um, that's one of the biggest things I think caused grief for people because. They feel like they can't connect with people for me i feel like i've been connecting more with people because i know where they've been and we talk um but this pandemic has there's so many things that it has uh caused a loss of not just the death of hundreds of thousands of people um I think you were saying something, asking something else specifically there. No,
0: that's, that, that is, it actually was the part two, where you just said, I had some guilt about, I I had some guilt about feeling more connected to people during this time. I'm glad you said something. I don't know why I feel, I just think because a lot of the like listeners that I've uh, heard from are very lonely. Um, And I say, you're not alone all the time, probably 50 times a day to people to remind them they're not and if they hear me then they know they're not alone i am right there um this voice means you are not alone so but i i i felt more connected during this time because i think i valued connections way more like a, like living again living with with death is it's like living with once i learned you could be this isolated i have really connected not in quantity but with quality of those people in my life I really want near me. I've made, it, I've made efforts I never made before. And so when we talk about isolation, I actually haven't felt that for me. I felt really more connected to Amy through these struggles, my kids, and uh, the people in my particular community that I have built. Now, granted, I am heard by thousands of people, so that makes it
2: easier for me. Um, but I've felt... No, no, I don't know if that's... I think that was not necessarily true. You are heard by so many people. And people reach out and people do have a connection with you that you, you don't even know. Right. But how many people are doing that on Facebook and they have, a, yeah. you know, 1500 likes and it doesn't do anything. And I will say the exact same thing. I feel like it has made my relationship with my husband so much stronger. I feel more connected to my husband now than, than before. I feel, you know, I, I've talked to my si- sister well through all of this and, talk to people and some people say you know we haven't seen each other it's like oh i don't even feel that because for me you you're right here we're we're connecting not about likes you're not thumbing <laughs> something up you're you're saying what's going on in your life how are you doing i want to know you know you know what what are you binge watching what are you you know like tell me yes. And the first thing when we when we do not feel enough, when we do not feel like we are worthy, we are so afraid of sharing these things so we isolate, and that's what perpetuates all of this even further. And you know in a in a place right now where anyone feels free to attack each other for some reason, I, I, that may have been going on for millennia, but I know why people are afraid to to say something. Um, but I, I think we need to learn how to listen to people, not about agreeing with them, mm-hmm. but to hear what people people's suffering, to hear what's going on for their heart, to hear that we are all... I Since the beginning of the pandemic, I started doing twice-weekly guided meditations for free. They, I live stream them on my website now. I've done different versions of it. And Mondays and Thursdays. And I started with meta-meditation, loving-kindness. And part of that is you recite phrases, one of them is may you be safe. And based on the framework, everything we've talked about, I truly believe that we all do behaviors when we don't feel safe or when we do feel safe too. So just to be a little polarizing or political here, like some people think they'd be safer if there's a wall that's built. Some people will think we're safer if there's not a wall built. I can have compassion, not necessarily agree. I can, com- I can have compassion for those people that, with whom I don't agree because I know that they're coming from that idea that they want to be safe. Mm-hmm. And that really flips how I look at it. Oh, that person's not getting vaccinated. That person's getting vaccinated. That's what it's like. They all want to do it. They're all doing this because they want to feel safe.
1: You know, I've been thinking about this a lot, that whether we do or don't do something – it's often the same reason. Yeah. If we do something or don't do something, it's either fear or safety, but, yeah. it, but it- it's, it's the same coin. We're all operating on the same coin. It's just which side of the coin did we happen to flip on in that moment. And I think that true empathy and compassion for human beings comes from curiosity, just being curious.
2: Exactly. Amen. Yes. Amen. I, I, yeah. Can we do that here? Yeah. Amen. I'm a, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean that. Yeah. It's because I, you know, I think about my colleagues, patients, friends who are like, can you believe those people didn't do whatever? Yep. I was like, mm-hmm. well, because notice you're upset because you don't feel safe now. That's right. Granted. Mm-hmm. I, I understand that. And- I think that if we took that stance of like, well, I don't even, what if we don't even know what's the right thing to do, right? How do we take care of other people? How do we do the best to make other people feel safe and they have to be heard and then we have to reach out and then we have to stay connected. But, oh, I don't want people to think that I'm weak. I I was just saying this to somebody the other day that, they were talking about vulnerability. And I said, you know, vulnerability is simply when you think something you say or do could be used against you. Mm. But if you have radical acceptance, yeah, I did that. Yes, I did say that. Or, I did say that. that's not what I wish. There's no more power. That's right. And you're safe.
1: <laughs> we could sit here and we could just like rap on this all day long. Um no, I'm so glad that you joined us today on the podcast, and I think that a lot of what you're saying really resonates, and it's not its not how most people think, because most people aren't thinking. I mean that with all the love in my heart, because when we're scared and we are in fear, we're in survival, and that could be, I'm not even talking about the pandemic necessarily, I'm talking about anything, right? Any point in your life that your body is wired for survival, And wired for safety, and that it actually takes something, like Dr. Brad says, to come to that present moment, have that radical acceptance, have that mindfulness, to notice that you're making judgments, to notice where you're not feeling safe, and and to approach your relationships in your life with a sense of curiosity. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I hope everybody feels as good as I do compared to how I felt going (laughs) starting not that I was sad to be talking uh-huh, to you. That's okay. not what I'm saying, yeah, Dr. Yeah. Brad. Every <laughs> time I've heard this man speak, I feel better. It, it 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 grounds me and it reminds me of what's important. And I mean that. Like, I hope everyone hears you talk because I, I just feel I'm running from death sometimes and, and the death of those around me. And I think the deaths in my life profoundly affected me and I'm scared of it. And I don't admit that to myself all the time. But when I just accept it, like you said, and when I'm trying to live my life, not in fear, my life is so much better, It is so much better. And you really have to, it's a practice. And, and I, and sometimes I don't practice it and I feel it after a few days. Does that make sense?
2: It just have to say, I'm glad you used the word practice because that's what we think. I get it down once. I don't have to look at it again. <laughs> yep, yep. No gymnast, no athlete, no musician would say, hey, I played my scale. I played that once. I can come to this. No one does that. Yeah. But we don't offer the same respect to our, our moods, our beliefs, our way of being. So I'm glad you brought that word up to end with practice.
0: Now I have to remember to practice, even on, even on my Fridays and my Sundays. And uh, I, I want to send everyone to the breathspace.com Is uh, and is that where your meditations are as yep. well? You're gonna, uh, there's, okay.
2: a, there's a meditation page and you can live stream on Mondays and Thursdays at 8 a.m. <laughs> I'd have to do it during my show.
0: Now that would be an interesting show that I'm doing. Um, Dr. Brad, <laughs> thank you so much. It is so good to see you as well. During this pandemic, there's this time goes by where you don't see people for years now, you, years. You, have you had this? You just, you run into someone and you look at them and go, it's been two years. Cause there was not exactly like we all hung out. We didn't
1: go hang out January with everybody. January before
0: the <laughs> pandemic, like, Hey, this coming, we got to all hang <laughs> out. And like, it's going to be, it was just like, yeah, I haven't seen my brother in a while, but that's cool. I'll see him. So really when I saw my brother, it was like two and a half years. It was crazy wow. amounts of time. So it is good to see your face and it's and hear great to your, see your faces and hear you as well. And, uh, I really thank you for being on the podcast
2: and spending some time with us. Thank you for having me.
0: Come I love Dr. Brad. It was so good to talk to him. Uh, Amy, uh, I wish we had recorded the outtakes afterwards because I basically got a roadmap for the rest of my life. (laughs) So thank you, Dr. Brad. I'm working on it, friend. I'm working on it. Follow up with me. I'm telling you, I was teamed up. Amy, (laughs) Dr. Amy and Dr. Brad, you put those two in a room. Whatever's going on in your life, it gonna get better.
1: (laughs) We did team up on you a little bit, but it's, it's all for the greater good. It's all good. Yeah.
0: I'm feeling great.
1: Yeah, you even said you felt better. Yeah,
0: we also want to thank uh, our friends Leah Porcelain. I love those guys. R- they invited us to Germany, Amy. Anytime we're in Germany, sweet, we're crashing at Leah Porcelain. They 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 play music in this uh, in this amazing like group house art space concert venue recording place. It sweet. is just it's, and
1: they have a spot on the couch for they us. They got a
0: spot on a couch that I'm sure many band have slept. We will be there. Um, we want to f-
1: thank our friends at Ruinous Media, Joe, Pat, and Chris. And I also want to. Say congratulations to Patrick, on our team. Yep. He and his wife Corey just had a little baby, baby Otis. Baby
0: Otis, welcome to the to the family. Yeah. We also want to welcome our uh, our our newest member of our team, Jay Cox. He is a hero. He's going to be getting that sweet sweet sponsorship money for the doctor and the DJ That's right. to That's pay right. for this bad boy. If you want this, you if want you want this. to
1: sponsor this, <laughs> if you want to sponsor this noise, you better get yeah. a hold of us. Get a hold of uh, this, Jay Cox. This
0: costs money, so. Uh, You reach out to us, put you in touch with our people, and that people is Jay Cox. He's a good guy. Uh, I want to thank Michael Benjamin Lerner, uh, also under the name Telekinesis, for our amazing theme. And, of course, thank you to you for subscribing, for listening to us. Make sure to tell everyone you know to do the same. Follow us on The Doctor and the DJ on Instagram. I'm going to leave you with um, just the most moving song I just ever play on my show. It is just just a gorgeous song, and I want you to listen to the whole thing And I want you to go find this song. And whenever you're feeling down, whenever you're feeling like you're not okay, listen to this one. It's called I Am Okay from Leah Porcelain. And remember, you are not alone.
2: A new day comes
1: The show must go on Coming back
2: Do I go Well, do I run